Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 106. Thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. We have uh, Edison Jennings as the guest today. He'll be with us at the quarter hour. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and you love poetry too. So make sure you click the like button and share, leave a review on iTunes. All that kind of stuff is really helpful because that is how people know, um, the computers know, to spread poetry that we do on these broadcasts to people around the Internet. So please do click something right now if you haven't yet or do it by the end of the show, but, but right now is probably the best time. Um, now before we begin, we're going to do a little bit of Poetry Spawn Live, as we like to do. And I'm going to call up um, today's poet, Teresa Gleese, or Therese Gleason, I should say. Here we go. Let's call up Therese. Hello, Therese. Great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and where are you located? I can't remember. Um, I live in Worcester, Massachusetts, oh, okay. right in the center of the state. Uh-huh. Um, well, I'm so glad you could be a guest and share this poem. Um, do you want to just explain a little bit about what, what inspired it? I mean, it's kind of the story that, that a lot of people are talking about. And we got a lot of poems um, for, you know, poetry response submissions about this poem this week. Uh, so do you want to just uh, let me know what it's about? Sure. Yeah. Um, and let me just start by saying thank you so much for selecting it and for the opportunity to be here. I'm, I'm just really excited um, and honored. So, um in reading the coverage about this story, like many people I've been following with chagrin, with sadness, with anger, and um, it was this one particular comment that really struck me because the staffer of uh, Governor Cuomo described two acts that he essentially perpetrated on her that were really uncannily similar to things I had experienced in my life, albeit in a very different context. And so it just brought all of that back and um, caused me to reflect on it mm -hmm. and think about how might it have been different had this occurred, what I described, which both of which incidents, the first occurred about 25 years ago and the other occurred probably 15 years ago. Um, would it have been different? Because there are really... There was less, there's less ambiguity now, I think, about what's inappropriate mm -hmm. and what's harassment than there was at that time, at least. That was my experience at a Southern university. Um, so that's kind of what, what started it. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, we had so many submissions um, sent for this poem over the last couple, or for this topic over the last couple of weeks. And what stood out about this one, in addition to like the great straightforward storytelling that you do, um, this insight where you say he did it because he could, it was a violation, but it wasn't personal. And that feels like something that it just rings so true. It feels like it's, it's like a, like a power play when people do things like that, especially um, in the instances where, you know, when people witness it happening, it's like, look at what I can get away with. It's kind of part of the motivation, it seems, right? Right. That was how it felt to me at the time. Yeah. And how it still feels to me when I reflect back on it. And it felt just, even the, the proxemics of the event that occurred, the person was over me, I was seated, and the person in the position of power came down. I mean, there was just so much about it that I've, I've obviously turned over in my head mm -hmm. over and over. But yeah, it was just, it was a power trip, I think. Yeah, uh, and does it feel... Um... 
I know, we talk about poetry as a, as a means of healing a lot on this show. Does it feel good to get it down and get it out on paper? Is that, is that part of the motivation to write for you for this poem? You know, that's a really good question. I think um, I really believe poetry can be an aid to healing. I think it was a combination of feeling good in that I told my truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was painful to write as well, to yeah. be honest, to go back, um, particularly because it brought back grief about the loss of a dear friend. And um, so it was both, you know, certainly a positive experience, but it was painful as well. And there was a part of me that felt quite vulnerable to share the story. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that you did. Do you want to go ahead and read it? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much. Sure. Okay, so I have it pulled up here. Okay. Yo también. And the epigraph is from the New York Times. Ms. Camiso said Mr. Cuomo also kissed her repeatedly, including at least once on the lips, and rubbed her buttocks. New York Times, August 8th, 2021. The entire Spanish department was in the auditorium. I was there to recite Jose Martí, un hombre sincero. I saw the chair striding up the aisle. We hadn't spoken since he'd signed his book for me, helped me get a research grant. I reached out to greet him with a handshake, but before I could stand, he leaned down, kissed me full on the lips, a wet smack in plain view of the room. I froze. My cheeks, Carmín encendido. I was un siervo herido, afraid my peers and professors would think I was sleeping with him. A macho wannabe with his fake tan and too tight shirt unbuttoned to expose tufts of gray. It was 25 years ago. He was brazen and smart surprising me in public with a move that was inappropriate, but it wasn't like he propositioned me. I talked to the student ombudsman who said it was my choice whether to file a complaint, who couldn't guarantee that Dr. S wouldn't dock my grades, block me from required courses, write bad letters of rec, or expect recompense for good ones that he wouldn't do it again to me or someone else. I doubt I was the first or last undergrad he kissed. Don't doubt he went further with others. He did it because he could. It was a violation, but it wasn't personal. Unlike another professor at a party 10 years later, my best friend's husband my own husband's colleague at a university where the old guard called each year's incoming female students the talent, who grabbed my ass in my own kitchen, squeezing hard, remarking on its tightness. I was wearing a thong and skinny jeans. My friend was eight months pregnant, tired and swollen on the couch. I called him out, and he called it 
drunken tomfoolery. I never told her. How could I? She's gone now, died young. I still ache to think I kept a secret from her, to think how she'd feel if she ever knew. Thank you. Yeah, and that was Yo Tambien by Therese Cleason. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing that poem, Therese. It's an important one. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. Yeah, have a good night. Thanks, you too. Bye. That was Therese Gleason with uh, Yo Tambien, of course. And you can find uh, more of Therese's work at uh, her website, which is right here. Um, it's Therese, T-H-E-R-E-S-E, Gleason, G-L-E-A-S-O-N.com. You can find poetry and other things here. So do check that out. And now I thought we would go um, back in time a little bit. We have about five minutes, so I'm going to call up Edison Jennings. And one of the interesting things about Poets Respond is having this this like almanac of what we were talking about um, throughout the years. You know, we, it's, it's eight years now almost we've been doing Poets Respond. And um, this is something that I, looking back through the list of poems we published, I kind of forgot about. Um, but this was all the talk and what everybody was worried about. This was the anxiety, which is hard to imagine, back in um, August 13th, 2017, so four years ago. And um, this is uh, Megan Fernandez, and uh, this is what she says. Uh, the poem is responding to the growing nuclear anxiety in the world via somewhat obsessive and panicked use of a website nicknamed NukeMap, which allows you to access the world's arsenal of nuclear weapons, fallout, and casualties from potential warfare. And what was going on at the time, in, in addition to the, the reason why Nuke Map was so popular at the time, was because um, of all the talk between North Korea and North Korea sending missiles um, over the, you know, and, and there was that, that scare in Hawaii, remember? Where, um, you know, it, it, the, the launch, the, the emergency warning came as if there was like a missile launched, even though it was a false alarm. So there was a lot of anxiety going on, um, which is very strange coming, you know, from the perspective of the pandemic now. Um, and so, so hopefully it'll feel as, you know, the pandemic will feel as uh, old as this story does. But this is uh, interesting to go back in time four years for this poem. And this is um, Megan Fernandez with, uh, with NukeMap. Here we go. NukeMap.com. It is 2.37 a.m. and I make myself eat an apple while on the laptop Alec Baldwin is hosting Match Game, an experiment in the ageless art of game show hosting like Orange Light diving back into the 70s. In an open tab, I am dropping nukes on New York City to watch the airburst swell into a new species of hydrogen fruit. I do this over and over until each bomb becomes a sun that you detonate virtually into the night. Davy Crockett and Little Boy, Batman and Ivy Mike, Gadget, Castle Bravo, and Tsar Bomba. All of the bombs are named for boys with fathers from Pakistan and Russia, Sly America, or the green sea waters of a Korean dream. Some of the really bad nukes only have numbers and are unnameable, like B-83, because you can't name something that can kill 1.8 million people, even if you are its mother. You detonate the bomb and listen to Gravity Rides Everything. You detonate the bomb and still think the 90s will save you. You tell your roommate that if the bomb goes off above 39th, you might both survive. New York City is the default target on nukemap.com. 
This is so unquestioned that you clutch your O'Hara and write David Trinidad in Chicago a handwritten letter to tell him about nuke anxiety. He doesn't even know you well, but he was nice once in the lobby of the Marlton on A Street when you recited Creeley and talked for three hours, and lately you only want to be around people over sixty. You still expect them to save you. You still believe in elders. You can get the second season of Match Game on ABC.com for free. You can watch all your favorite comedians from 1992 come to life, resurrected like clay prophets, saying that you can live in the television where nothing will incinerate you. You are back in Seinfeld's apartment, and all that matters is that Jerry doesn't want to date someone with man hands. All our futures are like time beating backwards into sitcoms with the laugh tracks of the dead, and the apple in your mouth is now an organism you slew in your throat, and each of your sons, Davy and Mike and Bravo and Fat Man, are standing on top of a heap of nuclear soil that was once a very specific girl let's call her Anna and they are asking you to forgive them like any mother would just a powerful powerful poem the intensity of the anxiety there moving through um, that poem by Megan Fernandez nukemap.com um, so check that out of course at rattle.com slash respond you can find all of these poems now we're going to call up um, Edison Jennings and uh, we will be right back with him. I'm going to put up a little screen and a little music, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. So we have Edison Jennings on the line. Um, Edison Jennings has been in several issues of Rattle. It's really exciting to uh, get to talk to him today. Um, I've always enjoyed his poems, and um, he's got a whole bunch of them. I think we've published four that are just really great in Rattle. Um, Edison Jennings lives in the southwestern corner of Virginia and works as a Head Start bus driver. He served 13 years active duty in the Navy, and after separation, he completed his education and began teaching and writing. His poetry has appeared in several journals and anthologies. He's the author of three chapbooks, Reckoning, Small Measures, and A Letter to Greta. And his newest book, his first full length, is uh, Intentional Fallacies, which is uh, right here. I'll put it on the screen. Um, a beautiful cover, too. And that is available now from um, Broadstone Books. And uh, here he is, Edison Jennings. Hey, Edison, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing well, Tim. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, it's just a pleasure to meet you. It's one, you're one of those poets that I've you know known through poetry for, for a very long time. It's always fun for, to... For- um, to get to actually, yeah, to get to actually meet somebody who um, he, I, I feel like I know you through your poems. Um, do you want to do you want to start out by uh, reading a poem? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to read a poem uh, titled "Durable Goods." It's uh, um, a friend of mine really likes it, so I thought I'd give it a shot. <clears throat> Perfect. Yeah, good place to start. Uh, durable goods. She knew the frigs and stove would outlast her. Washer and dryer, too. And her car was good, her son had said, for more miles than she'd ever drive. So what to do with what last, like the four-post bed? Well, that she hoped to die in, as her husband had, ten years past. But she'd made sure her will was clear, who got what, not why. Details wore her out. Some things last a good long while. She would not. The body's estate, she said, just stuff to stuff, amen. Burn it and be done. Sell the house, divide the rest. And Joe, you can have the car, 
but Susan gets the silver. Give Luann the four-post bed now that she's found a lover and dare her to wear it out if she can. And that was Durable Goods by Addison Jennings from uh, his newest book that just came out, Intentional Fallacies. Um, so do you want to start out by uh, talking a little bit about how you got into poetry, Addison? Uh, what made you a poet? You were a Navy guy. Did you start writing poetry um, before that or, or after that or during? Um, I started writing uh, poetry uh, towards the very end of my time in the Navy. I, I read poetry for a long, long time, mm-hmm. you know, since um, middle school. So always liked it. So, so what was it that made you, um, you, know, you know, turn to start writing it at that time? Well, um, to start writing it seriously, uh, I had a, a cousin uh, named Starkey Flythe, who was a short story writer and a essayist and an editor and a poet. And he told me to stop, you know, screwing around and start writing for real. And why don't you apply to Warren Wilson? Because I had something like a GI Bill mm-hmm. uh, that could pick up the tab. Oh, that's cool. So you went to Warren Wilson? Yes, I did. And what was your experience like there? Was it a good program? Yeah, it was great. Um, it was, it was uh, you know, I thought I was, I was pretty cool with poetry that I, I knew I knew poets at, but I was I didn't know anything about contemporary poetry or very little mm-hmm. you know so um, it, it, it was it was very new to me um, and I was terrified you know because I, I, I all these people are so good what am I doing here kind of feeling but I did I really liked it um, uh, my advisors were great and um, that yeah give it an A plus Oh, that's that's great. Um, so this this book is um, intentional fallacies is the title, and a lot of times when I read a book, it's very obvious where the title came from and why. But this is a much more subtle um, kind of use of the title, I think, unless I, I missed a poem where it was explained. Um, can you just uh, talk a little about why um, you you picked this as the title? I mean, of course, it, it's it's interesting. You know, fallacy is a um, is like a false belief. And um, and so having intentional false beliefs is such an interesting concept, and then applying that to life is a really interesting idea. But but where did that come from, and, and why did, does this collection feel like it, it should have that as the title? Uh, well, intentional fallacy or fallacy of intent, I think, is a term that uh, was used in um, uh, modernist uh, criticism, particularly for, for poetry, for verse. And then it was picked up later, um, in the um, postmodernist period, and it meant something a little bit different then. And it just occurred to me, well, if you flip it around, you know, from fallacy of intent to intentional fallacies, it really means something slightly different. It means that the fallacies are intended. The, the reason for that, I'll be real clear, and I know, Tim, you're up on this, uh, in the, I'll just talk about the modernist period. The modernist said thought that the reader could not know what the writer's intent was, and it was insignificant. The only thing that mattered was the poem itself, and you had to analyze it in very you know strict uh, uh, prosodic terms, and uh, which uh, I think is kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. So. That's interesting. I, I didn't really uh, you know, think of it that way, as being about in, in, intent as far as the poet's intent goes. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, I, I was thinking about sort of the, 
in terms of like the myths we live by or something like the myths that make life you know livable uh which which comes up frequently in this in this book it, um, it's that it's, it's that too yeah it's that too i think and also that um you know poets lie poems lie fiction lies literature lies doesn't tell the truth mm-hmm. yeah. and it does it intentionally yeah yeah i mean that, that's always interesting to me the um one of the things I always think about is how, um, for the haiku poets, like we talked to Richard Gilbert on this podcast and in, in, in an issue of Rattle, and, and talking about the history of haiku and how much, like, unless you know the life story of the poet, um, you know, you can't know what the haikus are really about very often. Right. And and it's just, uh, you know, entwined completely in, in uh, literature in that world. And then sort of try to dissect that completely. Um, it's really it's kind of, it's, it's, I don't know, we lose something when we try to do that. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, you don't want to go too far on the other way and, and yeah. only have the focus be on the poet's bio. So it, it it's sort of cuts both ways. There's some kind of happy medium in the middle. Well, it's it's sort of hard to say, read something like by Shelley, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and we, a lot of his poems are very politically charged. And he's obviously trying to get a political message across. And then to say, well, you know, this is a, and then somebody, no, you can't make that judgment, you know because that's a fallacy of intent. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's, let's hear the next poem that, that you wanted to read. All righty. The next poem is um, A Letter to Greta. And the Greta here is Greta Garbo. And there's an epigram, epigraph rather, says, uh, So pitying and yet so decent uh, by, uh, from Cecil Beaton, who is a very famous uh, photographer, and took hundreds of pictures of Greta Garbo and was also her close friend, maybe her only close friend. A letter to Greta. Among my father's posthumous floatsome recently washed up in my house, I found a letter postmarked 1925, address Miss G. Garbo, Hollywood Cali, private, stamped return to sender. Sealed, unread, and stored for 60 years inside its author's desk. Held to light, the envelope revealed a trace of earnest cursive written to a star flickered on a million screens. I set a kettle on the stove to steam the letter open and explicate the heart of this dead man, once vestal boy, husband to three wives, one widow, one dead, one faithless, also dead, fighter pilot with cleft chin and good teeth, whose friends had died from too much war or too much booze, who, if asked what happens when you die, would sip his drink and say, you rot. When the envelope at last unglued, I I found a time-fogged photo of a contraposto skinny boy in running shorts in Jersey, holding up a trophy cup, most likely won at some junior track event before the age of endless wars. And I slipped the photo and never read Forever Virgin letter back inside its envelope, taped it shut, and late that night burned it all beneath the stars as offerings to a heaven of Greta's. That was a letter to Greta. And um, reading that poem, I just couldn't imagine not reading it. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, kudos to you for, for not doing that. Um, but, but that, that must've been tough to, to, you know, not have your curiosity fulfilled. Well, it, it, once again, it's an intentional fallacy. Um, I found the envelope, but the, uh, the, uh, letter wasn't in it. Ah, okay. 
which was a huge disappointment. Yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. Um, but I, I, I have no allegiance to the truth, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think we, you know, we, we talk about this all the time, but I think we have an allegiance to, like, the deeper truth, you know, the, the truth that's true even when the facts aren't or something. And so yeah, that's what these exactly. kind of poems do. Like, this is where your heart was. Yeah. Um, and really interesting. And, and there's an interesting way that you build drama through here. And I want to talk about the way that you, you um, build drama, but do it very concisely. This is one of the longer poems in the book, actually. And, um, and, and you usually, you know, you pull through the drama in a very concise way. Do you want to talk a little bit about your style and, and why you do that? Why you write, you know, how you, how you like eliminate everything that's unnecessary in your poems? Um, yeah, I'll talk about it. I, I, a lot of it has to do with the way the poem sounds. I will read the poem over and over and over again and, and really hear, try to hear how it sounds and try to, um, you know, be able to make a case for why it's a poem. Um, and, uh, also, um, I, I also look at poems, especially poems like this and also durable goods is a bit of a story. And I actually look for weak points in the stories and what I can put in that will be revealing. I write a lot of poems about other people, not about me. Um, and I, some of my poems have a little bit of narrative content, as, as this did too, as did Durable Goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's hear another one. Uh, what do you want to read next? I want to make sure All we get right. through a good next number. one. Next one is going to be a, song, a poem called Country Song. And um, here it goes. <clears throat> Country Song. She styles hair, does manicures too, and sassy girls bonbon salon. The place to go for a killer do. And he drives a long haul truck, popping addies to stay awake, selling weed for an extra buck to pay off their subprime loan and not have their house repoed. We're screwed, he says, screwed to the bone. Then she tells him he's her hot mess, brushing back a wisp of his hair, adding, Honey, I couldn't care less. And though they get high, they somehow survive and manage to raise three kids who say they'll visit but never arrive. Last night she held him while he was asleep and heard him mutter, ain't nothing we'll keep. Whoever dies first, the other will weep. That was Country Song from uh, Intentional Fallacies, a formal poem, which a lot of the poems are. And one of the things that I'm always curious about is how you decide what you're going to write when you write. Do you, um, do you do you hear that first line and then that generates the form of the rest of the poem? Is that how it works? Or is this the sound process? Sometimes or I'll hear the first two. Mm-hmm. Now and um, and suddenly realize I can rework it. Also, sometimes I just feel like writing a formal poem to see if I can do it. Uh-huh. Well, it's probably that, maybe around half of your poems uh, in this book are, are formal. Would you say something like that? Yeah, I'd I'd say uh, half of them, uh, pretty close or either formal or sort of really flirt with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what do you what do you think you get out of it? Like why, I mean, you're in the minority for writing formal poetry. Um, you know, unfortunately, because I love it. Um, yeah, I know you do. I know <laughs> you do. Thank you, man. <laughs> but, uh, but why do you think that is? And, it, and, and it, what do you think dri- you gain from using it? it? It drives the poem down the page, I think, is one of the things. Um, it certainly provides an adhesive if it's done well. Um. Also, um, I think it's foolish to dismiss poetry that's written in a certain manner that for some reason is, you know, not particularly hip. And uh, 
So and and it, there's a little bit of the contrarian in me when I do it, mm-hmm. but I also I like to do it. Yeah, yeah. What what is it about it that you like? It force. Okay, this is this is an old argument. It's not new with me. When you're working in a form, you're forced to make decisions or go places you might not normally go because the meter and if it's rhymed or whatever drives you there and a lot of times your solution is better than you would have written normally if you weren't trying to rhyme it um why that works i don't know Hmm. and i i'm not the first one to say that though yeah well that's what i love about it too um and speaking of you said you mentioned drive you there and uh, you work now as a bus driver. You've been a teacher before. Yeah. And, and I was wondering, um, you know, why you made that transition. It feels like, um, you know, what was it like to be a bus driver? And what's that like? Uh, it's, it's really interesting. I work for Head Start. Uh, and uh, most of the kids, obviously, are really little. And they are most from, um, you know, uh, not exactly wealthy uh, backgrounds. They're really sweet. Um, I always, I always thought it would be cool to be a bus driver, school bus driver. And the funny thing is I don't do it much because there are about four other drivers at the Head Start Center. They're all women, and they all drive better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was thinking, I mean, you know, it's teachers, you know, most poets are teachers, like you've been in the past. And that strikes me as one of the worst jobs for a writer to have because you don't, um, you know, you, you're, you're focused in sort of that same way. That, that sort of inc- almost creative engagement when you're teaching, and then it's all in the same place. And what was interesting to me is that, that a bus driver is the opposite because you're out in the yes. real world, but you're, you're running the same routes. And so yeah, you're it, sort it, of free to like daydream where you're not free at all to daydream as a teacher. So I'm wondering if your, your poetry improved when you made that transition. I, I think perhaps I, 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 one of the things I like about teaching at Head Start, you know, and it's really more, you know, taking care of kids and introducing them to stuff and, you know, helping them grow. And, um, is it, you're not engaged with academics. You're not engaged. You're not going and standing in front of a class trying to explain to someone, you know, the dynamics of Hamlet that's out. So, and, and so it frees you. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not playing that game anymore. And I think I'd probably do more good as a as a head start working for Head Start than I did anywhere else. Yeah, well, it seems like a great job for a poet to have, I'd say. Um, let's hear another poem. What do you want to read next? I'm going to do Connoisseur of Decline. Um, when I will get it right here, um, Connoisseur of Decline. Your rubbish-strewn house, sway back and rotten, and butt for ghosts, condemned and vacated, ramshackle chapel of the forgotten, has collapsed on its choice, as if deflated. No well-meaning friends can now rectify the chaotic charm of your OCD. They loved you too well to ever dare try, and you went to your grave with your pedigree. A curious man, a gleaner of junk, Young wife, confessor, and dear Abbey reader, dashing in used clothes, in love with a punk, a watcher of birds, a liberal heart bleeder, and writer of stories not enough read, kind and peculiar, and terribly dead. Sonnet there, connoisseur of decline. And uh, I, I love this line, a ramshackle chapel of the forgotten. 
I mean, that is, if you uh, don't love saying that phrase out loud, you don't love language and poetry. Um, that is just so fun. Maybe everyone at home should say that out loud. A ramshackle <laughs> chapel of the forgotten. Um, do you remember where that line came from? Did that just come out through? It yeah. It, it, it popped. Um, I always liked the word ramshackle. And just as I was writing, and I, it, it was really, it's, this, is, this is actually a fairly true story. Um, you know, I, I used it and it just, chapel just hit me immediately. Ramshackle, chapel. Yeah, and I said that's a keeper. <laughs> well, it definitely is. Let's hear the next one. Uh, the Klansman, I think, is what you wanted to read. Oh yeah, time. okay. This is uh, page twenty-five. This is where intentional fallacies, I think, really might uh, uh, be most significant. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the Klansman. An uncle of mine was in the Klan, but I was never told his name because the Klan was trashy, according to my grandmama and. A, clutch of aunts and nieces who play-acted chatelaines and spent their leisure time reading glossy magazines like Vogue, lunching at the country club with a glass or two of sherry, and giving of their time and treasure to worthy Christian charities. But I had my suspicions, and the uncle I suspected was a vicious man, especially so when drunk, though the distaff tried to spare me family tales of shameful late-night escapades because they thought me sensitive. But my granddad had the notion to get me laid, thereby curing that affliction. I was 12. We'll go shoot Dove, he said, and afterwards, well, he knew someone young and pretty and winking, cupped his hands upon his chest, and I winked back, dimly knowing what he meant, while he slipped me $30. The next day I faked sick and kept my, the cash along with my virginity. And so that Georgia summer with my mother's family passed while I spent the afternoons playing in the shade of trees or ensconced in that shadowed house, reading Uncle Teddy's trashy mags like Argosy and Four Men Only. He had a taste for lurid stories, but no trashy clansman he, just an alcoholic who found Jesus on the wagon and stayed there 15 years until... Calm as a saint, he shot himself in his basement at 3 a.m., where he kept my granddad's taxidermied kills, skins, heads, horns, and tusks, a suburban charnel of the wild splattered with blood and brains. And how did all that come about? Did he wake up in the dark thinking, oh hell, what's the point? And with no answer imminent, go downstairs, slow and quiet, so as not to wake his wife to get his fancy 45 plated chrome, ivory grips, and bang, his wife wakes like a corpse in Revelation. His wife, who would have joined the clan if she'd had a chance, but didn't because, as she explained, her husband was a pussy, a mousy little pussy. And when I asked, why the clan, why not the D.A.R., she said, it's that horrid man, James Brown. He lived close by, and all his friends, they need to leave. Then, as if to make us eat right as pie on all accounts, she said, please, you must have these, and handed me a hippo-footed humidor, a scarab trap tra trapped in amber, a lapis buddha, and my uncle's fancy gun, packed with tissue in a box, my name in Sharpie on the top, but now they're dead, all of them, with my quiet cousin, Gay and decent docent of stories, last to go. I sowed his ashes on a shadowed southern green, a gem among the rubble, only son of the uncle I thought might be the clansman, 
and rightly so, it seems, because beneath the bed he died in was a suitcase filled with pornographic photos, letters, and a diary, and stuffed inside a sack, a hooded robe, so frail it tore when handled, redolent as death, blazoned with a cross, burning inches from the heart. That was uh, the Klansman from... Uh from intentional fallacies um, i should say if anybody has any questions for um edison please do leave them in the chat messages um, edison it's interesting that you mentioned um in that poem uh, the that that's intentional fallacy aspect comes up which is such an interesting question when it comes to poetry because even though i know that poets make things up and they're not literally true i still fall into it every time where i assume it's true unless the poet tells me otherwise um, yeah. and, and you sort of, it's weird. It's this weird space where you gain a lot by thinking that it's true because it feels so true. Yes, it's almost true. like a, like a testament to um, how easy it is to con people or something in a way that, that poetry works. That That's why I, dis, I, I dislike that term intentional fallacies because there's nothing wrong with thinking that. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what it's supposed to do since the beginning when people started telling stories. You know, you were supposed to believe them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I don't know, like, do you, I don't know, like, like just what do you think about that? Like, like, do you, do you feel like, like, does it feel like a letdown telling people that stories aren't true? Or? Um, I, what I, I hope maybe the reader wonders is, why are these fallacies intentional? Why did he intend to write a fallacy? Uh, because fallacies are usually accidental, you know, someone believes something that isn't logically consistent. But if you s- say a fallacy or write a fallacy that you know is fallacious, then that introduces a whole new set of problems. Mm-hmm. So it was also be just being a wise ass. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's true, too. Um, so so you're in the um, Appalachian Poets issue. Um, and, and you're sort of, I feel like, um, I think I read that you're sort of a, you know, half your life is Appalachian and then the other half is like Southern. Is that, did I read that right? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've li- lived, well, uh, I've lived in Southwest corner of Virginia, mm-hmm. you know, forever, but you know, there have been a lot of times when I lived in Georgia <laughs> and a lot of times when I lived in Maryland and, um, and, uh, and in the, you know, I've spent time in Florida, especially when I was in the Navy. So I've been around the South quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, we did a Southern Poets issue, too. It's always really interesting to, to do these issues uh, where we're dedicated to, like, some regional or some kind of group of people that have things in common and then see what those commonalities are. And there is a strange sense of... Um, I don't know, almost like pride and guilt intermixed with the, with the yeah. Southern poets. Um, mm. Whereas um, um, it, it's something very similar, but slightly different with the Appalachian poets, where it's like pride mixed with um, like defensiveness or something. Like, especially, especially now. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Especially now. And um, so that, that Klansman poem feels like a very Southern poem, which is why it's interesting that you sort of straddle that line between the two areas, because that's the kind of poem that we would have. If you look back through our Southern Poets issue, it's full of those kind of poems where, um, you know, I sort of have pride in my family, but it's, it's also a shamefulness, too, you know, in the history of, um, you know, uh, slavery. And, and, and Appalachian poets have a different thing. It's, it's the way that Appalachians are perceived, um, 
So, so I don't know. You write a lot about characters. Um, did you feel like you're representing Appalachia when you write? And, 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 uh, the poem in rattle, um, uh, the Appalachia. Yes, I did feel like that. And just in case anybody's read it, that one's, I, I worked in the kitchen during COVID packing meals and delivering them to families that couldn't mm-hmm. get out. So, and, and this just kind of my experience in working in that kitchen. And I really liked the job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's hear another poem. Okay. This one is rain. Uh, no directions to a ruin on page four. And, uh, yeah. Directions to a ruin. This one is set in Appalachia. Follow Spoon Gap Road past the Free Will Church and find a wide hip chimney stub girdled with a snarl of berries, dark and sweet this time of year, rooted in the fireplace, blacksmith pot hook curled like a come here finger, but the house is gone. Lightning burned it down. The crooked stroke still scarred across the hearth. An easy view from where a doorway might have been. Several generations lie beneath a hill toothed with snaggled headstones, tilted by a hundred years of freeze and thaw, where love's observance long ago succumbed to underbrush and new growth oak and grief's alphabet weathered to a palimpsest on lichen freckled slates. You might rest there. Stretch out in the chimney shade and taste the wild blackberries, slightly tart with ash. Directions to Ruin from Intentional Fallacies. Um, Edison Jennings' first full-length book. And I always uh, look around for some interviews um, that other people have done before I do these just to see what you know people have talked about. And one of the things that I noticed in an interview... I can't remember where it was. It might have been with one of your chapbooks. You mentioned that your goal um, as a writer was to publish one, publish a full-length book. And, you, and I noticed that you, you specifically said, like, A, like, like your goal was to publish one. And um, I'm wondering about that, about why that was your goal, and what it feels like now that you have. Um, uh, well, I would like to have published several. Um, I just figured that, you know, if, if I've done one, if I've managed to get it together enough to do one, then I, I've done something because I've devoted a lot of time uh, to, to writing this stuff. Um, so what was the second part? Um, and just like how it, how it feels now that you've, you've accomplished that. Oh, Does it feel I, like it's, I'm really troubled by it because I haven't, I haven't written a new poem since it came out. Interesting. And, and I, I, I don't like that feeling and I do want to write more poems. Do, do you know why that is? Because I, I had the same experience. When I wrote a book, I, I didn't feel like I wasn't compelled to anymore for a while. Um, like yeah. bef- before that, it was a compulsion where I like, I, I just sort of was in this routine where I wrote and I felt good about the sort of meditative discovery of writing. And then I wrote a book and it sort of became professional or something. Like I had to do readings. I had to do stuff like this, even though there was no Skype at the time. I guess there was Skype, but they didn't have shows like this. Um, but I did live readings. I was on the radio and things like that. And um, and for some reason, it just sort of took that mysterious pleasure away from writing, from the experience of writing. And so I, it felt like a letdown or something publishing. And I almost wished I hadn't. And it took a few years to get over that. Um, so since you bring that up, do you, do, you, do you kind of resonate with that? Is that part of it, you think? No. I, I You know, I, it's just a feeling that I'm out of gas. 
hmm. you know, that, um, and then I worry, uh, which is not a good thing, you know, you know, can I write another poem? Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've gone through these periods before though, you know, and usually something will kick it in with me. What almost invariably happens is, is a line will just, you know, something that's sucks, you know, syntactically and phonically interesting and, you know, has a hint, a hint of content. And then I, then I got something to work on. Once I got something to work on, I yeah yeah for me i um i I didn't write for like two years at all and then i think i went on a a trip like a a workshop retreat thing for a week and i had nothing else to do but write and i wrote a bunch of good poems and stories and i thought oh i can do this and then that led me to not feeling bad about not doing it which led me to not even doing it for even (laughs) but um but anyway, uh, we can't wait to get back on the horse again and, and write some more um, Edison, which actually another thing and one of those things that I read about you, um, you mentioned you have a book project related to scientific speculation. Um, and I yes. am just the scientist in me, or <laughs> scientist lover in me, can't help but ask what the scientific speculation oh, sure. that this book project I, I, I've is. I've not been able to make any project on it. That, <clears throat> um, it was going... You know, I, um, I forgot what it was. I had the title. Uh, it was something like the fertile stone or the seeded stone. And it was a notion that uh, uh, life may have began, begun on Earth or certainly been assisted by uh, really hardy, tough guy uh, viruses that hitched a ride on a on a on an asteroid. I mean, um, yeah, on a meteor, and you know, crashed into Earth. And I just think that's you know. Because that's almost like God, zap, you know. Yeah. Like like that William Blake, you know, etching with God with his, you know, little tri- triangle. So. Yeah, that's fascinating. So how are you gonna how are you gonna turn that into a book? That seems like a, a dare I, to wrestle I, I with. Could, I couldn't get off. The, I could. I, I like all I had was the idea, and I had what I thought was a cool title. I can't remember it all. That was as far as I got. Yeah, yeah. That's so I mean, especially now. Um, you know, our history with viruses is so, you know, there's that whole um, whole hypothesis or whole theory of psychology now about um, the way that fear of viruses shapes civilization. And, um, you know, and, and mitochondria used to be a virus. I mean, it's so fascinating, all the different angles that you could take with that, digging into the science there. That's a fascinating topic. Um, anyway, let's hear some more poems. Okay, this one is um, What to Do with Leftovers. And it goes something like this, Char. Oops. Went past it. What to do with leftovers. When she doesn't show, toss out the bread for birds, freeze the shrimp in Tupperware, and forget the words, all that awful sweet talk you practiced while you cooked, the boyish innuendos and just how good she looked. Plug the cork back in the wine, the fresh whipped cream won't last. What was meant to be a feast has now become a fast. Take the pills the doctor gave and try to get some sleep. What you could not save was never yours to keep. Uh, what to do with the leftovers? Another form. Maybe I was missing in my uh, estimate. It's more than 50%. Um, so a lot of formal poetry in this book, which I just think is great. Um one thing I wanted to ask about too, which is sort of a delicate question, so I'm not sure. I don't know if you want to even talk about it, but but the poem um, "Brown Eyed Girl" is about um, Lucy um, 
the the Denisovian um, girl who who they found, um, archaeologists found. But then it's also about a daughter, and the book is dedicated to Lucy, who um, passed away. And, and do you want to explain anything about what happened? Uh, my my daughter, who I, you know, of course, I adored, uh, um, died in uh, I think uh, when she was twenty. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just it just it, it just really hit me hard. And when I was reading about this discovery of uh, the Denosovan, I can't pronounce it, uh, uh, f- fossil, and that she was young, and that she, you know, I think they did some mitochondrial analysis. She might have had brown eyes, and my my daughter had the most beautiful brown. I mean, really gorgeous brown eyes, and so. I click. Sometimes a lot of these poems come really fast, mm-hmm. and I'm done with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, that that is a thing that's true in the book. That's not a fallacy, um, and it, it's no, touched so on um, in several poems. Um, saw so date. I think um, is coming up, and and that's about that too. Um, is is there a way that the the fallacies of the book are sort of giving permission to write about that difficult topic, or is that just Something. Yeah, that might that 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 might be true. Of course, uh, brown eyed girl gets me because you know it, you know that it's written about someone else, but you know at, at least ostensibly at the beginning, and um, mm-hmm. complicates issues. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's hear another poem. Okay, this uh, poem is called Sordade. And what does that mean? I, I meant to look that up because I don't even know. I I, um, I learned this word from, um, frankly, um, an old girlfriend of mine, and she. Uh, it's a Portuguese word for a sorrow, a blues that cannot be named, that mm. it exceeds, you know, expression in a sense, which makes it like the, the blues because the blues it exceeds the linguistic expression of it. You know, it's more than that. It can't. It can't be. Um, so that, that's that's where I got it. Because mm-hmm. grief is really hard to write about. Saudade. Not so much the cold gets in, but the heat goes out of this ramshackle house. I know that much, but don't believe it. And belief won't keep the cold out and won't plug the leaks. I've installed storm windows and stuffed rags and door cracks. I let morning light shine through east-facing windows and shutter them at night. Common sense things. Still, cold leaks in. A neat tide of loss drawn high by the moon and vacuum you left. Seeps through the floorboards, pools in the corners and laps up the stairs until I retreat to the wreck of your room and wonder, the closest I come to prayer, are you warm out there beyond the world's rim? Just a beautifully moving poem, um, sordid, from intentional fallacies, and 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 knowing, I don't know. There's just something um, about the grief there that that comes out so strongly in that poem, and it's interesting that the other poems sort of move around that topic in a very subtle way. Um, yeah, they do. And and so so I was imagining. I mean that that metaphor of the 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 house with its leaks, you know, for for grief is such a strong one. And, um, and and that's the thread that kind of runs through this book, which is a, a really beautiful uh, book when you read it that closely and, and think of it in that that you know from that perspective. Thank you. Um, that is the most direct expression um, 
I've written about it. Probably the most direct I'll ever write about it. Yeah. Is it, is it tough to read? No. I, I, I've, got, I've read it several times, and I can do it now. No problem. Yeah. So changing topics a little bit, Richard Westheimer just wants to know what, what Appalachian poets do you read? Do you have any favorites? Oh, that's a, you can't, yeah, I do. Um, a lot of them are local. I should get my, I should get my list out. Uh, uh, of, co- of course, uh, uh, let me just say this. Maybe this will close the book on the subject. Charles Wright, mm-hmm. by the, it w- would, I mean, it's to me is hands down. Of course, his subject isn't very often about Appalachia, though some of, some of them are. Uh, Michael Chitwood is another, um, some poets I know. Um, um, they live around here, uh, and um, it's, it's, I'm having a hard time naming any others. I wish I had my little list. <laughs> yeah, I should probably me. I should probably tell people to make a list because people always ask. Everyone wants to like you know have reading suggestions, and um, so I should tell people ahead of time to have a list prepared. There, um, well, there's a southern poet that I, I I really like. It isn't read much anymore. I think he's really good. His name is Andrew Hudgens. So there's a plug shout out for Andrew Hudgens. Yeah, I'm trying to think if we I'm familiar with uh, his name and his poems. I I'm, I'm trying to think if we published him or not. I can't remember if I'm just read it somewhere else or uh, if we published him. Um you were going to read a poem um what was it that we skipped over? Oh no, it's the next poem up, The Cats of Rome. And um do you want to read that first, I guess? Then I'll ask. Okay, uh, sure. What I was going to ask you about it. Okay. Uh, The Cats of Rome George W. Bush Silvio Berlusconi Second Gulf War War Summit Rome, July 4th, 2004 The Cats of Rome sleep, feed, and breed among the tumbled travertine and slip tails high across the flag-draped avenues. Ignoring pomp, alert to circumstance, they cruise cafes for crumbs or prowl the pantheon. Because the ages blaze and fade, cats ignore the ranks of flags and fleets of long black cars. At the axis of the empire, they curl round Trajan's column, indifferent to a fault, at home in a falling world. That was the Cats of Rome, um, written on my birthday, June fourth, twenty four. I wanted to ask about this poem because it's one of the only political poems in the book, or, or overtly, you know, overtly political poems in the book. But it's so well done, um, and, and it takes me back to a time when political poems were rare, um, and, and they tended to work better when people wrote them. I think. Um, can, do you want to just? Can you talk a little bit about how that poem came to be? Sure. And and what why you don't write political poems often, but when you do, how you go about doing that? Um. Uh. Well, the the story behind this poem is I I was when I was a professor, um, I took a bunch of kids with some other professors to Rome and to Florence, and um, a very close friend of mine, Felicia Mitchell, was really worried about the cats in Rome, and there there are a lot, and nobody takes care of them, especially down near the Colosseum. And I said, um, don't worry about them. Felicia, they're going to be okay, and I'll write you a poem about it. That's how that came about. 
Oh, interesting. So how did it end up about, you know, Bush in that, that meeting? Well, because when we were down at the Coliseum on the, we had actually gone to see Keats house and then the, and there was Carbonari, which are Italian police and they're armed to the teeth. I mean, these guys do not fool, fool around and they're everywhere and there's flags flying and they're, you know, stay, you know, seatings put up. And uh, we're, you know, messing around down by the Coliseum, I'm sure several hours before, or it may even be, been the day after that they were supposed to come through. And Felicia, who is a very gentle and good person, was really worried about the cats. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, the cats have been around for a while. They've seen a lot of stuff come and go, including the Roman Empire and the great papal states, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I look back to Egypt, right, with the... Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just so interesting, too, that, that that poem came not from a political perspective and then ended up having a political angle on it, um, which is what I was sort of trying to lead you toward, is that the political poems, um, you know, if they're political, they sort of have to come at it from a slant. Like if you end up, you know, professing your political opinion, it ends up being very flat and, and sort um, of didactic. And, and um, Well, the, it, I immediately went to... Uh... Uh, the political aspect, because one, we were in war, mm-hmm. uh, and two, Bush was coming to talk to Berlusconi, you know, why don't you help us out here, you know, and uh, so, um, and we were, and Rome is a militant state, if there ever had, if there's ever been one, and uh, and there have been one, others, including us, and um, and the cats did you know, they, and she was right. The cats did get up, you know, survive all of that. And so that was, that was immediately the thought, th- what I thought of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a great um, comparison too. right now, you know, pulling out of Afghanistan after that quagmire yeah, of a loss. And yeah. I mean, how, how we have so much in common with the Roman empire, uh, just with better media maybe or something. Um, Especially in the middle East. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think we have time for two more poems and one question. Else. Let's read a poem then a question, then uh, something in the middle. Okay. Or, or another um, poem, I mean. I'm going to read a poem called Apple, Epi- Ap- Apple Economics. That's pretty short. Um, Apple Economics. Though livid and salacious, supermarket red delicious don't deserve the name, but after bagging two or three, I think of old stock stamens that grew behind our house and weather-beaten, bee-infested rows no one ever pruned, and all we had to do was reach. I must have eaten bushels worth while balanced in the highest limbs. With one handful of apple, the other swatting bees, I watched swallows tip and skim the tree-rimmed skies, already hinting cold, the windfall left ungathered, the barren years that followed. And now this bag of garish fruit, my memory grafts to vintage among the grows, rows of grocery aisles that green to fields of praise. That's Apple Economics. Another, I think I would call that a political poem too, actually. Um, so there are a few in this book that are slanted, like, you know, just touching on things political in a way that really works. Um, and I have to say that I cannot stand red delicious apples. So I love that poem just for that reason. They're, they're not edible. <laughs> they, they should be illegal. They, they really should. It's like an affront to nature or something. I mean, they're just the worst. Um, so so people are just saying how much they love these poems. And and really, every poem in this book is great. Um, I, I really, there's something to, to really enjoy from all 
the poems in the book, and there are 50 plus of them or something. How, um, how much is like that a grooming process or, and how much is that like a crafting process? Like, do you have, you know, hundreds and other poems that aren't published that just don't last? Yeah, I, I, I have other poems that, 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 um, aren't in here. Um, and most of them are, you know, really crap. So the, 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 these aren't that crappy. So put a bid there. Also, I had some poems I liked that just didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, I just kept out because it went somewhere that I didn't think the poem, the book was, you know, go, ha, ha, just seemed out out of key, something like that. So, so how do you decide like which poems to include in a book and which, uh, you know, which to send out for publication? Um, if you have a lot of other poems, like how do you know which ones are working? Is there some way that you feel it or do you not know well, until you get feedback? This is cheating. I wrote a poem, a book, a chat book called Reckoning. Uh, and it took me a long time to write that. And it was in two parts, part one and part two. So at uh, the advice of, of a friend of mine, uh, who's good at advising, said, put the first part of Reckoning, part one of Reckoning, at the beginning. So that was solved. And I said, yeah, you know what? That's right. I don't need to mix these up and try, you know, just put part one. And then I then then put new poems and then then put part two. And or and so that's what I did. Um, part ones and part three, I believe, of this poem, these poems are reckoning. And the other the rest are just and that gave me a feel for what I kind of wanted mm-hmm. and pack them in there. And it's interesting, too, the way that you organize this. Um, I'll put the, the contents on screen. Um, the. Uh, Unlike most books that have sections, there's a gap. And so right here between the first section and the second, there's just a page gap. And there's it's a very subtle way to do like a divided, you know, different sets of poems. There's, I think, one, two, three, four, five, I think, sort of sections in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and why did you make that choice? I've never seen anybody do it that way before. I, I thought that that was enough of an indication that that's... That, 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 <laughs> that that part was over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a way that it sort of like doesn't insist upon itself. Like, like there's a way that sections with like, especially if you have like different titles like for each section and sort of like overbearing a little bit. But here it's yeah, just I like think, I, I think that had something. Yeah, like like it, I, the the fear feeling is like um you know like take what you may from that that part's over. Take a breath. Let's move on. You know. Um, let's see. So one last question from Richard Westheimer. He says, uh, where would, would you prefer that we buy the book? Like what's the best place to buy it? Okay. Um, well, I would prefer you to buy it from Broadstone books, the publisher. It's uh, a lot cheaper than you can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. If for some reason, you know, you want to do it somewhere else, there's a, there's a book distributing company called small press distribution, Mm -hmm. SPD. Um, and, uh, so they're, they're good people. Amazon doesn't really, you know, Amazon is Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's good. That's the uh, link that I include in the show notes. So anybody listening, no matter where, whether it's on even iTunes later, there are always show notes. You can always follow a link to uh, the poet's book. And and that's the, the link I included. Um, how did you find this particular publisher? Uh, well, uh, because I was sending out this manuscript to anybody that would give it a read, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, and uh, it, they they weren't real eager at first, but um, I uh, and, but they came around and they said, OK, yeah, we'll do this. 
that's great. Um, okay, let's hear the, the last poem. Uh, what do you want to close out with? Uh, um, the one I will close out with, and I just pick it. This is, is something of a, a political poem, by the way. It's called Tipple Town, and it's, re- it's written in three triolets, and which is, I remember learning that form while I was writing this book, and I kind of said, oh, that's cool. So I decided to put three in a row to kind of create a little bit of a narrative structure. And what page is that on? Oh, that's on page 19. Okay, great, thanks. Okay, go ahead. Okay. The church of Zion's pews were filled, and 15 sinners testified. The pastor prayed for minors killed. The church of Zion's pews were filled. The reborn praised what God had willed, while minors' children knelt and cried. The church of Zion's pews were filled, and 15 sinners testified. Two. The cold dust settles everywhere. The fish are dying in the creek. Mama thinks death's in the air. The cold dust settles everywhere. Now daddy drinks and doesn't care. The mining made his lungs real weak. The cold dust settles everywhere. And fish are dying in the creek. You don't see children anymore in this exhausted mountain town. But folks remain are mostly poor. You don't see children anymore. All the schools have bolted doors and onyx coal has been shut down. You don't see children anymore in this exhausted mountain town. And to put in a plug in front, my my niece, Helen Rose, who is a very good musician, uh, 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 and she's a pro, I mean, she um, liked this and she turned it into... Put it, put it to music, and she did a really good job. And if you, if you, if you go to SoundCloud and type in Tippletown, hmm. you can hear it. And she did. I mean, it was she. You know, she she went to a studio and it was mastered, and it sounds really good. Poem may not be worth a shit, but it, it sounds really good. <laughs> well, that's a great poem. I think maybe maybe I'll play that um, later in the show on the open lines. I'll, I'll find that and, and try to play it if I can. Um, but Edison, thanks so much for being a guest. These are just wonderful poems and a great book. I'm so glad you could join us today. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. I, this, this is, I, I really am. I'm divided. You, you made me very happy. I've had a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks. Me too. Thanks, Edison. Have a, have a great night. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Yeah, so it was Edison Jennings with uh, his first full-length book, um, Intentional Fallacies, right here. And um, like we mentioned, you can find the book at... Um, Broadstone Books, that's B-R-O-A-D-S-T-O-N-E, books, broadstonebooks.com. So find Intentional Fallacies there. Just type in Edison Jennings and Intentional Fallacies into Google, but make sure you buy it from the publisher, which I think every publisher appreciates. Um, Now we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to go to the uh, open lines and our prompt poems. And the prompt for this week, which I think maybe in the show notes I have last week's prompt still. Um, So hopefully people... (laughs) He didn't get confused. Um, I, I just noticed that when I was looking up the um, the uh, the link for for the book. Uh, but anyway, this week's prompt was right here. It was this is Megan's voice. I love the way Joni Mitchell's song "Circle Game" uses the image of a carousel to illustrate the passing of a ch- of childhood. Choose a symbol we associate with childhood innocence: a teddy bear, a jump rope, etc., and let your poem unfold from there. 
And uh, that was the prompt for this week. And um, so get your poems ready for that. You can also share any uh, Poets Respond poems, any recently published poems, anything you would like to share. Um, how you do it is you email the poem first, like right now, so that I have it in time because it takes a few minutes to, to get through the internet to my inbox. Email it to openmic, that's open M-I-C, at rattle.com. And then call in either the, either over Skype or the phone. So over Skype, put Rattle Poetry into the uh, message or into the search bar. Then send me a chat message. Just say, hi, I want to read a poem. That will get you on the call list. And um, if you would like to read over the phone instead, just give me a call at 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times, then hang up, and that will put you on the call list. And I will call you back when it's your turn. Um, so far, we have Richard Westheimer. We have a first-time caller in um, Dr. Hemond Aravind. Um, Angela Gartner is here. So uh, we'd love to sh- uh, hear some of your poems so please do call in sign up on the open mic and we will be right back in just a moment with uh, the open lines and i'm back thanks so much for your patience as i get everything set up now um, as i mentioned the prompt poem for today was to write a poem that uses a symbol we associate with childhood innocence is the start of the poem and uh, this is what I came up with. This is, uh, I, don't, I think it's my first real poem in a little while. Because it was actually a poem, in the last few weeks I've been struggling having time. But this time I actually had a good amount of time to work on it. And I actually had something I started with and went somewhere I didn't realize I was going, which is how I define poetry myself. So this is my poem according to the prompt. This is Hobby Horse. And a Hobby Horse is those little you know, horses that you ride on. You know, that little horse head with a stick that little kids ride around with. Here we go, my hobby horse poem. Hobby horse. You find it now exactly where it always was. It sits unplayed behind a door within the closet of your mind. That's where it stayed even when you were of age to clomp around the upstairs hall on four imaginary legs until this poem came to call. Now that door is cracked, a shaft of light illuminates the horse's once familiar face, hand-sewn with love from winter socks. Of course it's emblematic of what's gone. You're close enough to smell the must where fabric moths have laid their eggs. Its button eyes are filled with dust. You don't remember riding it. Not once. The toy box where it slept, it always slept. A guardian content with just the watch it kept. That was my hobby horse poem. And we really did. We had a hobby horse. Unlike Edison Jennings' uh, (laughs) poems, uh, that is based on a true story. We had a hobby horse that I never rode sitting in my closet in this toy box that uh, I played with Legos and stuff when I was a kid. So here is Megan's poem. And I believe this is true, too, because we have a picture of um, Megan's house where the tree swing was. And hers was about a tree swing. So here we go with Megan's poem for the week. Tree swing. I wanted to see what would happen if I let go of the ropes, if the sunset, pink and maternal, would hold me. But when I slipped through the clouds and fell, graceless as a wounded bird, flat on my back in the wood chips, the sky was wordless, and I was breathless, and the swing swayed in the wind that left my body, while above me the world was dim and traitorous, but wider now, as if the fall had cracked it open like an egg. And when I got up, I was older, and everything hurt except my hands. Oh, good poem. She said it wasn't good, and she lies. Um, uh, the wings swayed in the wind that left my body. Great line there. 
and uh, and another good poem by Megan Tree Swing, Megan's poem for this week. And now let's see what your poems are. In, in the time since uh, the break, we have um, added Spartacus, and we have added Patrice Wilson to the call list. But let's call up Richard Westheimer first. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Hey, Tim Green. I, I love how much you love Megan's poetry. <laughs> it, it's just so, I mean, it is good poetry, but it also is lovely to hear you appreciate it so much. Well, I do, and I'm a professional, so, so you know, what I say goes, and she can't say that it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I do have 17 years of experience in deciding what's good or not. <laughs> oh, well, it. it it's nice, nonetheless, on a personal basis, just to hear that appreciation. Well, well thanks, Richard. Um, so what did you want to share? Did you, do you want to do the prompt poem? Um, so I have my PR poem, and I also have a prompt poem, if there's time. Yeah, sure. I think, uh, yeah, we, we're not, I think we have plenty of time, so why don't you do both? Um, okay. Which okay. one do you want to do I'll, first? I'll do the PR poem, Syncline of the COVID Mind. Okay. Let me just pull it up. Okay, I've got it. So, so I mean, this is about COVID. Anything else you want to say about it? Uh, well, uh, it's one of the, I'll just give this introduction that a syncline is a trough or a fold in stratified rock. Mm-hmm. So just so you don't ha- folks don't have to look it up. Yeah, I did. actually. And, <laughs> um, I, I will, uh, I'll just say that when we, you were interviewing last week, you talked about poetry sort of in a therapeutic sense. Mm-hmm. And I was going, oh, pshaw. <laughs> like, like, no, that's not what it's all about. And by this weekend, I was just like overwhelmed with anxiety about, you know, the state, stay the world. And, mm-hmm. and, and much of what's in this poem is true enough. Um, and writing it um, was an elixir. Yeah, yeah. Well, it I just, uh... I, I mean, yeah, there are tears in my eyes just sort of thinking about the transformation I went through without thinking about it in mm-hmm. terms of writing the poem. Yeah, it's really true. And I think that's what, you know, the best poems you know, they have that effect to you and then they have that effect on the reader. And I think that's how poetry works. Um, mm. I, it was interesting. I was just reading, um, you know, cause I'm interviewing that James Pennebaker I talked about in that last week. Um, so I was rereading his book and he, his little section talks about um, catharsis and how Freud sort of reintroduced or introduced for the first time, I guess the idea of catharsis in the West. And we interpret it as like a purge. Like it's like getting stuff off your chest, but the actual definition, um, you know, historical definition of catharsis is making connections, connecting mm. emotion to thought is kind of how, what catharsis is. It's not a purge at all. Like we kind of use it wrong in, in layman's terms. And so I think and it really seemed important to me because it seems like what maybe the general public would think poetry is doing is just getting things off your chest, you know, and it's, it's making connections and making meaning that then let you not have to process that anymore. You know, it, it solves the, the, the thing you're struggling with psychologically which lets your body work on other things, work on other problems. So that's how it really works, I think. Well, well, just a, a quick uh, measurement device of the poem. In the poem, I cheat on the Monday New York Times crossword puzzle because that's what's been happening for the last month. Oh, really? And then uh, that's as far as I can get. And this week I did the Wednesday. So, <laughs> well, Good job. There you go. Real empirical data for this yes. uh, theory. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. So I'll go ahead and read this. The Syncline of the COVID Mind. In the dawning hours, I wake with sheets wound round my feet, the night sweaty and close, the year's COVID forebodings set upon me 
like a layer of rock squeezing the sleep from me. I rise, walk out into the hall, see the door closed to the room where we slept together each night before all this. These days, you sleep there alone. At the top of the narrow stairwell, I stand unsteady, stare in the, into the tunnel as it falls away, the bottom obscured in darkness, foresee being birthed into the same dull day as yesterday. I descend, emerge, pad out into the gray, see a dead possum on the driveway. Its room bloodies the blacktop. Its eyes point back at mine, blank. The headlines, too, same as yesterday, floods and fires, lies and liars, and pandemic news of death and variants, vaccines and their resistors. I click on a PBS interview teased, study finds cognitive deficits in people who've had COVID. Listen a minute, flip to the crossword, cheat partway through the Monday clues, flip back to PBS, tap the transcript, read words like underperformance, impairment, unfocused attention. Flip back to the crossword, try a few more clues, put down my eye device, sigh. I am sway-backed by all that's settled on me. I've not caught the bug, but something's snuck up, folded me beneath a stratum of sediment, an aggregate of sorrow and fear of too many fleshless nights and friendless days. All of this hardens into colorless rock. This is the syncline of the COVID mind, an infection all its own. Yeah, great metaphor there, the syncline of the COVID mind. So true, it feels like we're out and then it feels like we're not. And I've been so mad at the media for the way that they're fear-mongering now. But I understand why they're doing it. I mean, they're getting more people vaccinated. But the toll it has on our psych psychology, I mean, the anxiety and the depression that it's causing, these sort of onslaught of awful headlines, um, I don't know. That takes a toll, too, and who knows what effect that's having long term. So I don't know. I'm very, I'm very sort of cranky about the media and don't, don't yeah. watch it myself. I, you know, I flip through the Facebook and the Twitter to see what people are talking about, and, and the, I don't know. I, I avoid it. Well, one, one, of, one of the cures I took was quitting Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's just it, the, the news, too. If we're watching the news, I mean, no one should. I think it's, it's literally bad for your health. I mean, like the poem talks about brain damage, but and there's a study um, that shows that people who watch news regularly have a reduced IQ because of that. Um, it, it's actually true. <laughs> so the news causes brain damage. Mm. And, and it, you know, it's no wonder because it increases your cortisol levels and, you know, kills brain cells. I mean, it really does. So if you're... Um, you know, you can't, you can't um, heal if you uh, are in a state of anxiety. That's just not how biology works. But anyway, a good poem. Thanks for sharing that. And that metaphor will stick with me for sure. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and then the other one, too. I almost forgot. Yeah. Yeah. A little lighter note, and I included a picture in it. If uh, It's called The Rocking Horse Economy. You had a hobby horse. I had a rocking horse. Yeah, there you go. That's perfect. And, and, um, and I think... Uh, the interview you did was great, but in his last poem, it was a poem about the fruit economy, which has a similar sort of idea to it here. Um, so, uh, the rocking horse economy. I was a caboose baby 
a late lamb, a plaything for my older sisters. I never had to holler, mine, to claim the few kids' things that lay around, the tinker toys and Lincoln logs, a metal top I'd wind by pumping its metal stem, my Tommy doll, and most of all, the little red rocking horse cut of splintery wood hung on springs that caught my clothes. I'd climb on its back, pretend to do stunts, fall between the rough-hewn struts, ride again without having to take turns, until today, when an online poetry prompt stirred its memory, and I tried to recount what had become of this treasure I claim by rights. I bet one of my sibs took it from my long-gone parents' attic, gave it to their grandkids before I could shout, mine. <laughs> That's great, Richard. Right, I mean, my uh, my brother stole all my Legos, so I feel, <laughs> I feel similar. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. Really yeah, fun poem to, to switch on. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, great interview. Thanks. Yep. Good Bye. Night. Yeah, it says uh, Richard Westheimer with uh, The Rocking Horse Economy and um, and the other more serious poem, The Syncline, which if you're just listening, that's S-Y-N-C-L-I-N-E, Syncline of the COVID mind. Cool metaphor there. Okay, let's go to this first-time caller. It's Dr. Hemand Aravind, and we'll... Uh, it's been waiting for a while on the lines. So hopefully we can connect. Well, Heman is not answering right now, although he was just here. So I'm going to try again. The, the ringer might be off. Um, so I will try after we do another poem. Um, and I have, I have it up right here. So whatever uh, we can connect, we can do it. And if not, I can just read it too. Um, let's go to um, Ted Guevara's poem. This is, um, Ted says, hi, Tim. Through, um, though I had to dig deep for the meaning of this week's prompt, I think my offering here comes close. The thing I'm trying to uh, rid or get over in this poem is not really bad or in need of change. It's more a way of appreciation. And if the details mentioned only empower that appreciation, then it's all wholesome and worthy. To me, if watching YouTube fashion videos over and over again produces a poem in me, then it's a gem. This is interesting. So this is a, a prompt poem from... Um, Ted Bernal Guevara, and uh, let me read it here for him. Put it on screen. There we go. It's called Bailey Videos. And um, yeah, so let's see. You know, I'm going to answer um, Dr. Heman Aravind first. Let's see. Make sure we connect. Hi, Green. Hey. Good evening. So, yeah, so glad you could join me. Let me. Uh... Hi. <laughs> Sorry, unfortunately, I was in, a, in India. It's morning time because yeah. I was a little bit <laughs> cooking. <laughs> okay. No problem at all. So I'm so glad you could join us. Um, what did you have that you wanted to share? Yeah, yeah. Today, I have. A, I think you already saw my poem alone. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and shall I share with you? Yeah, just let us know what it's about. Um, I try to fix this. Actually, it is. Actually, the poem is a poem. It actually is come, it represents, because we are actually, sometimes we feel we are alone, actually, in the crowd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, actually, it is, uh, I think everybody feels sometimes they are alone. So I try to represent <laughs> it uh, is the real feeling. I think some days maybe my English is not that much good because I'm an Indian. <laughs> I think 
Okay. No, it sounds great to me. Why don't you go ahead and read it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Shall I read now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Alone. Yeah, I am alone. But the world is overpopulated. Yeah, I am alone. No, you are thinking about others. I am still alone. It means you are convincing to someone. No, I am alone. Yes, you are in the middle of a crowd. How can I prove my solitary to you? That means you and I are here. Unfair. I cannot see anybody. Your eyes are only fall on your image. What a sociable feeling. How can I drink it? Please throw away your headphones. Break the mirrors and remove the spoon from the mouth. Now you can hear the melody of wind, rhythms of souls and visuals of colors. Now you are reborn. Exactly. You are born alone to a space of mobs. That is alone. Yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, it was wonderful to hear and uh, glad you could join us. Thank you, thank you, Timothy. Thank yep. you, thank you, thank you. Yep, have a good day. Have you good day. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so once again, that was Dr. Hemand Aravind uh, with Alone. Thanks for sharing that. Um, now, let me go to back to Ted's poem. Sorry for the interruption. I just didn't want to, um, if, if there was a ringer problem, I want to make sure I answered instead of uh, having to call him. So once again, um, uh, this is uh, Ted Gwert, uh, Bernal Guevara, and he uh, had to dig deep for meaning in this week's prompt. And I think my offering here comes close. And that's Bailey videos, which um, I'm not even sure what that is. Bailey videos. You know, I might even Google that. What are Bailey videos? Maybe he'll, he'll explain in the poem, maybe. Um, Brooklyn and Bailey McKnight? Is that what it is? I'm not, I don't know. Bridgerton? I don't know. What, I don't know what this is. We'll, we'll find out, though, with this poem here. This is uh, uh, Ted Guevara's poem, Bailey videos, for the prompt this week. Okay, Bailey videos. She worries that her clothes are not being seen, and I think occupational hazard. But for this one reflective moment, she is helping herself. She believes in her fit, that in her getting up in the morning, there's still hesitation. Yet, there's a will to greet perfection. Like her bed, she needs fluffing and manual ridding of creases, even before she thinks of preparing a healthy breakfast, which is also filmed. Everything has to fit neatly, and now shown. The sizzling eggs have to stay symmetrical in the copper pan, or else they're thrown. Bailey is not lavish. Her sense of life's detail just has to be seen in formation. And I, watching, worry about the avocados. How thick-skinned they are, and not at all hard when they're to be added to the eggs. There's a pride in God seeing quivering trees amass themselves with frost. That is the only way he lends a hand. Bailey checks him as her faith, but she wants lucrative out of life. With all her tan skin and blonde curls, I am only bonus. The aim of her sponsors is for girls to try on leggings, as chic as Bailey, and for me to delve into her real self, the things she does outside, her favorite color, hobbies, questions of my own maneuvering. I must put away things. I am but shallow in this, but putting away things not as a child, but as a man. And that is Ted Guevara's poem, Bailey Videos, which I guess she's a YouTube personality. And um, how did he put it? He put, um, 
YouTube fashion videos. It's so interesting that the the way that YouTube works. I studied it for a while before the Rattlecast, and um, it, I don't know. It, it relates to the last poem um, by Heman actually too. Just the loneliness and the way that um, you know YouTube's sort of a way for people to connect uh, when they don't have as many connections or something like that. So um, interesting poem, the Bailey videos. We'll have to check those out later. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Now let's go to um, let's go to Spartacus since it's uh, very late where he is. I'm surprised he actually is joining at this time. Um, so let's let him go to bed <laughs> by uh, bringing him on the Rattlecast. Hiya. Hey, Spartacus, how you doing today? I'm doing good. Well, and you? I'm doing good. Let me hang on one second because this um, I have to. Let's see. Um, the last caller had a very uh, a strange camera orientation, and I have to fix it so I can actually get yeah. you on the screen here. So just one second, mm-hmm. one second. Active speaker. That's not working. Let's see. Um, transform. Reset. There we go. Reset transformation. That's the button I need. Okay, so we resetted the transformation, Spartacos, and you are actually okay. here with us. So are you still in Greece or are you back in the UK? I'm in Athens in Greece. Ah, and how are things going there? Are the, are the fires getting better? Um, they are getting better, but uh, we had huge distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, a huge ecological distraction, yeah. especially in Evia. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but well, what, they what... are much, much better now. Much better now. That's good to hear. Um, so what did you want to share yeah. with us today? Um, I've got two poems, one uh, poet's response and a prompt poem. Is it possible to do both? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh, the first one is about an American archaeologist, Stephen Miller, and he was an amazing person. He spent four decades of his life excavating ancient Nemea mm-hmm. and bringing back the games, the ancient um, Nemea games. Um, amazing person and very interesting. Yeah, I'll have and, to look up more about him for sure. That sounds interesting, but I'm not familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, For the archaeologist Stephen Miller, Stephanos, who died recently. A summer day in ancient Nemea, I look the restored sanctuary of Zeus, empty of your presence, Stephen. I see your footsteps, Stephanos, in the excavated stadium, waiting eagerly for the Nemean lion and Hercules. A long time ago, in Gosen, in Indiana, you ask your father about the job that you should choose when you grew up. God gives life for a reason. When you will discover the purpose of your life, you will live a happy life, your father told you. That day, at the fountain of Gosen, Neptune, with his trident, transformed your childlike imagination into a sovereign. The athletes in the Nemean Games Remind me that the smile on your face of your childhood existed for a reason. For the same reason that Kalipatira violated the ban and became the first woman to watch her son competing in the Olympic Games. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to definitely have to look up more about the, the Nimian Games and uh, Stephen Miller. Um, I think he was a professor in the university in, uh, in California. Oh really? Uh, in Berkeley, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I definitely and, have to look into this because I'm I'm definitely curious about about more about that. Uh, what was the other poem that you wanted to share? 
And the other poem was a prom poem, a Bowling with a Basketball. <laughs> Interesting, okay. During a summer day, just before I would start school, my grandfather gave me a basketball and I knocked down many empty milk cartons with my friends. Falling, bowling pins, both the last days of my summer and the previous years of my childhood. Oh, that's a wonderful memory. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Spartacus, uh, bowling with the basketball. You're a wonderful poem. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Good night. Yeah, that was uh, Spartacus Enignosterus from Greece with um, uh, two poems. He had Bowling with the Basketball and uh, for the archaeologist Stephen Miller, Stephanos, who died recently. Uh, both very interesting. Thanks for sharing those, Spartacos. Okay, next up, we'll just, I think we have um, just regulars now coming up. We have, um, we'll do Angela Gartner, then we will do um, Patrice Wilson, and um, I have some poems here from Sharon Ferrente and Vicky Miko. Maybe they'll call in. Um, let's see. Okay, so let's call up Angela Gartner next. Um, she's got a poem tonight. Let's see what it is. Hey, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, so what did you want to share tonight? Well, I had two poems, too. Um, the first one, I it, it was actually... Um, it was it was from your I guess I can't even pronounce it today. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, thank you. You'll yeah. you'll just say it. I won't. Um, it was actually from a. It, I think it was from the June, but it's funny because it kind of fits in the prompt um, today because oh. it describes um, my it describes my grandmother's house that you know we had wonderful memories of her you know, hanging, hanging sheets on the clothesline, but we were, it also is about us kind of playing in her pool. She had this great pool in the backyard and we, she would be like doing the laundry outside and, and we would be like swimming in the pool and then she would come and hop in the pool with us. Um, so it just kind of, it kind of fits the prompt because that's one of my, you know, one of our favorite memories. It could be renamed about the pool, but it, um, definitely it was about, you know, just hanging out at grandma's house, which is a, one of our favorite times of, of our childhood. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, let's hear it whenever you're ready. Okay. And then I have a poet's respond poem too, so. Okay, yeah, know. let's do both. I think we're gonna have plenty of time tonight, so go ahead with both. But, uh, but let's hear the summer sheets hung on the clothesline. I'll show the picture maybe afterward. Or should yeah. I show the picture right now? What's better? Probably now. Let me show the picture yeah. really quick yeah. in case anybody doesn't um, doesn't remember the prompt. Um, the picture is here. Maybe I'll, I'll I'll share one of these poems too after we're done with you. So here's the photo. This is a, a sunline. Was the poem or the the painting? Um, a watercolor yeah. painting by Annie Kuhn um, from uh, June's Ecrastic Challenge. Yeah, and it it just. That was such a pretty painting. It just brought me to this memory. So. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to hearing. Go ahead whenever you're ready. The summer sheet she hung on the clothesline. I remember our pool where the sun's rays sparkled and flickered off our goggles. Grandma was there holding the basket and clothespins, watching a splash in the water, sweeping it against the sides and onto the grass. The bed sheets she hung were lifted gently by the warm summer breeze. It created rippling waves in the cloth, 
I saw the moving shadows of thorns from her rose bushes. She would roll up her pants and sit on the top rung of the ladder to wiggle her toes in the coolness. I could faintly smell the honeysuckle lotion she put on her face that morning. We raised our pruny fingers and asked for her attention as we did our underwater handstands. Pleased with our triumphant, she would slightly bend her neck when she smiled at us. Again. We knew the sprinkle of rain would arrive soon to ruin the day. The clothesline is empty and broken. Yeah, great poem. I just love, you know, the thing that I love most is reading submissions, is journeying back through people's memories and sort of getting to feel like, you know, you, you kind of know what, what you know, know, know what's inside somebody's mind, which is the amazing thing about poetry. So thanks for sharing that. That was really fun. Oh, thank you. And uh, then the other one, uh, what was the other one that you'd like to share? Well, um, the other one was the, um, and it's at the bottom of that. I'm trying to make it easy for today. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. That does make it easy. Um, the uh, pyromy, you know, pyrocumulonimbus. Yes, clouds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's so funny because uh, I actually drove your way not too far. I didn't. I went west mm-hmm. um, the past mm-hmm. couple weeks to Colorado, so a, you know, little less than you guys in California, but going west to east to west, and uh, you know, we were in all the the haze coming from the the fires out west, mm-hmm. and it's just crazy, like how you're like in the smoke and going to it. And my son, you know, he actually wants to be a firefighter when he grows up. And, you know, I was just kind of, it, I'm, you know, it's interesting. The smoke has really had me interested in the past couple of weeks. So I started kind of looking it up and I found, and I saw this article that those clouds and it's not, it's, it's some, it's, they're, they're called the fire breathing clouds and it's not really they're bringing kind of like a even a more storm and Mm -hmm. if you think a storm like like as rain and stuff but it's not it's like lightning and and they were saying you know kind of you know these firefighters you know it's really scary for these firefighters who get into these clouds and you know because all this the clouds are like the fire breathing clouds basically you know with all the smoke kind of bring this heat and lightning and wind and, you know, and it's a very scary cloud to be in for the firefighters. So that's why I was just thinking of them, you know, as my son someday wants to be a firefighter, (laughs) I always think about maybe that's kind of what brings me kind of close to the smoke. Like, you know, someday he could be into this environment and it's, and it's scary for the families. Yeah. Yeah, definitely is. And the, and I can tell you firsthand from the firefighters around here, everybody loves them and they seem like very happy people. Like it seems very fulfilling, but it's also terrifying, you know, at the same time. So an interesting career. And we all, we all praise firefighters here for sure. Um, yeah, it it would be, it, you know, I, I keep telling them just go to a small city department. Go, don't go to New York. Or, <laughs> but he's my little daredevil. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I don't know what he'll do. But yeah, so this this is my poem based off of just kind of thinking of them in these clouds that these fire breathing clouds. So Yeah, go ahead. I have it up. Okay. Haze hazy with smoke from the fire that engulfs the trees. We cough on the ashes. The great clouds are hissing at us and pile on top of each other to get a look at the blaze that is burning our faces. They shake their heads to let the soot fall to the ground and take a big breath in to blow around the fiery limbs. 
Over and over, the rush of air lifts us from our boots. We grab the hoses, but they snake away in all directions. I am hit by a branch and that, that was split into two halves by the high-voltage flash that they threw recklessly. We chase the glowing embers that were scattered, but these fire dragons of clouds has us trapped in the flames. Yeah, thanks so much for that pyrocumulonimbus clouds. Uh, thanks, <laughs> Angela. I know. I, should, I I actually looked it up to pronounce it, and then I forgot. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no problem at all. Um, but I'm glad you could share that. Okay. Well, thank you. Have a good night, Tim. Thank yep, you. you. Too. Thanks. Bye. Okay. So that was uh, Angela Gardner with two poems. Thanks for sharing both of those. Uh, let me see. Let me do. Um. So I think we have a lot of we have plenty of time this week. Let me do. Um. Let me share the sunline, uh, the Ekphrastic Challenge winner. I, I keep meaning to invite the uh, two Ekphrastic Challenge winners on the air um, once a month, and I keep forgetting. But um. But we'll play. Uh, C.J. Farnsworth poem about this painting, Sunline, by Annie Kuhn. And once again, uh, for those who are listening, this is a watercolor painting of uh, towels hanging up on a line. And um, get a better view of it. There you go. And this is by Annie Kuhn, who um, also selected a winner. And this was, which one am I doing? This is my selection. I guess it's the editor's choice. This is Learning to Swim, a similar, another memory triggered by this painting. And here we go. Learning to swim. Mother fast-friended daddy's distant pool cousins so to be sure we could swim in their in-ground kidney with a corkscrew slide. We bit our tongues as mother jerked orange floaties up to our throats and yanked our hair under latex blossoms. We kicked and screamed and held our breath with arms over our ears as they roared, kick, jump, keep your mouth shut, while daddy's mama's brother's girl smoked menthols on a chaise in a gold bandeau drinking gin after gin after gin because, mother said, once upon a time, she was a beauty queen before she had a boy with sugar they called Tink and Katrina with golden skin and golden hair and golden ankle bracelets, a trophy come to life, who sometimes showed up with a long-haired, shirtless, round-shouldered boy to pick up a few bucks while I snuck into the house to use the drowning-in-pink bathroom that was inside Daddy's Mama's Brother's Girl's bedroom, to sit at her wicker vanity, wondering why the sun made my skin red, not gold, to clip on earrings that hung like bunches of purple grapes, before sloshing out the sliding doors connecting the bedroom to the slab patio right beside the pool. Convinced Frank Sinatra's, Daddy's favorite, bedroom must be just like this. Until Mother announced it was getting late. Until we packed into our green Pontiac. Until Mother, as heavy as the wet towels she piled in my arms, told me to put them up until I pinned each towel, until all the corners 
touched. Love that story and ending. I was going to have C.J. Farnsworth reading Learning to Swim, one of the two winners for the Ekphrastic Challenge in July, um, based on Annie Kuhn's painting, Sunline. To read the other one, go to rattle.com slash ekphrastic, and uh, you can see the other winner for the month. Now I have um, another poem to share with you. Let me turn back to the... Um, do this. This is a prompt poem. A uh, 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 what would you call it? A retrocausal prompt poem, maybe. This is a poem that I just happened to read in A.E. Stallings' book. I'll put it on screen. Uh, this is like um, A.E. Stallings' book. A.E. was the guest on um, Rattlecast number. I don't know, like seventy-eight, maybe or seventy-three, something like that, in the spring. And uh, this is her Pulitzer Prize-winning finalist book, um, like. And uh, this poem is a perfect poem for the prompt, so I thought I'd read and share that from uh, A.E. Stallings. This is The Pull Toy. You squeezed its leash in your fist. It followed where you led. Tick-tock, tick-tock, nodding its wooden head, wagging a tail on a spring, its wheels gearing, lackety-clack, dogging your heels the length of the house, though you seldom glanced back. It didn't mind being dragged, when it toppled on its side, scraping its coat of primary colors. Love has no pride. But now that you run and climb and leap, it has no hope of keeping up, so it sits hunched at the end of its rope and dreams of a rummage sale where it's snapped up for a song and of somebody, somebody just like you, stringing it along. And that is A.E. Stallings' poem, The Pull Toy, once again from Like and... You know, look back at that episode with um, Alicia and uh, enjoy more of her work. So um, let's see what else we have. Um, once again, I'm going to remind you of the phone numbers. Uh, they are right there. It is um, 818-850-7727. If you'd like to call in and share a poem, and if you'd like to go, um, connect over Skype, over a video call, it's Rattle Poetry, all one word. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and so I, I just remembered that we were going to um, see if we could do Edison's poem, um, what's it called, Tippletown. And I'm going to see if I can find, as long as it's not too popular, um, soundcloud.com, he said, and then Tippletown. As long as it's not too popular, I'm going to assume that it's not copyright restricted on YouTube. So as long as it doesn't have like thousands of views. Okay, it doesn't. It doesn't have thousands. So I'm going to play Tippletown as the song. It looks like this is 3 minutes and 37 seconds. This is a poem that um, Edison Jennings read earlier, but let's hear it by Helen Rose as um, he suggested that we do. Here's uh, Tippletown. Let me put this document screen back. Okay, I think everything's set up to play Tippletown the song. This should be interesting. The Church of Zion's pews were filled Fifteen sinners testified Pastor pray for miners killed The church of Zion's pews were filled The reborn praise 
That was beautiful. Once again, that was Tippletown. The artist uh, who sang that is Helen Rose, I think, did uh, Edison. Um, anyway, yeah, this is Helen Rose, um, Just Before It Gets Dark. And um, let's see, this is an EP. And it looks like maybe we will get, I wonder if we'll get a uh, copyright flag for that. If we do, I think what happens is this episode will have commercials, but the money will go to Helen Rose. So that's fine, too, if that happens um, on the replay. But uh, that's Helen Rose um, from the album before, Just Before It Gets Dark, um, singing uh, Tippletown by Edison Jennings. So um, let's see. Um, so let's see. Uh, we have a few more people who sent in poems. Um, so Sharon, Sharon Ferrante asked, this says, uh, has a prop poem for us. She asked me to read. This is Chinese Jump Rope. And Sharon Ferrante um was um, if you're watching the Critiques of the Week, she was the uh, the featured person that we went over her poems on the Critique of the Week this Friday, or one of the two people. And this is her poem for the prompt, Chinese Jump Rope. So I'll read it for her right now. Chinese Jump Rope 
grabs my uncertain ankles, caressing the times of change. The growing is soft and moving, allowing the this way, the that way. It was so easy, the step, the dance, the jump. Then the years stretched into the unfamiliar, so I opened the box of rubber bands. Very interesting. It was Chinese Jump Rope um, by Sharon Ferrante. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sharon. And then Vicky Miko has... Um, ah, she included a recording. Let me see if I can... Uh, let's see the best way to do this. Okay, so here comes... And then she has an audio to play, too. So she recorded it for us. That'll be a fun way to end. So, so this is a sandcastle. So this is Lily first sees, uh, first to see the ocean. This is uh, Vicky Miko's uh, contribution to the prompt. And let me play this audio, too, that she sent, which will be pretty interesting. Here we go. Lily's first to see the ocean. Lily rose early that day wearing her new daisy swimsuit. She sat long enough for Rice Krispies, half a cinnamon toasty, and a fresh orange smile. Her apple juice surreptitiously poured down the kitchen drain. She ran to grab her blue pail with four sandcastle molds, one yellow triangle, two green squares, one large, one small, and one red star. Hurry, please. On second thought, she stops to revere an inchworm. It's Lily's first day at the beach. Copper-toned squirts smell good on her warm skin. A sunburst wrinkled her brow. Her bangs, too long under her sun hat, poked her little eyes that salt-watered up like the tide. A blowy curl stuck to her cheek, kissed away. A hole dug bigger than a whale, Lily's sandcastle grew five stories high, her jumping jack dance kicked up a moat for the finishing touch. In her last triumphant twirl, her little toe pinched a delirious bumblebee groping in the fluffed-up sand. Sudden clouds above the wild sorrel, the stink of a bug bomb. Rightly defending itself, the bumblebee stung back hard and disappeared into a wave. Terrible noises came up from deep within Lily's insides, her clamoring crowd packed up and fell down hard on Lily's star-topped castle. In the frantic hurry, something was left behind that day. A little tribute, a little star tribute only to be found by the next beached star, only to be found by the next. The young girl sits in the spit-warm sea, the taste of wet salt up her nose for the first time she sees the Earth's curve. Oh, that was wonderful. Uh, Hyben by Vicky Miko. Loved that so much. A great story told through the prose. And then great, uh, well, I guess you'd call it both Hyben and Tonka prose at the same time because there's some haiku and then the last one's a Tonka. But, uh, beautiful writing. And then, like always, Vicky includes a few of her photographs. And this is of the beach. I assume that day we have the star, the plastic, or the star toy. And we have a sandcastle, and we have the uh, the bird with a star in its beak. Thanks so much for sharing that, Vicky. That was really wonderful. I, I appreciate it. And uh, it was nice that that was the first time in a while we've had a, uh, someone send an audio. And um, that was great. So, um, let's see. So, I think it's time for the Saiku. And I have to find my Saiku. So, the Saiku for this week was a little 
a little lighter than last week's Saiku. This is an article from, I got it from Phys.org. It's actually from the Smithsonian Tropical Institute, though. And this is published on August 14th, earlier, just yesterday. And here it is right here. Um, is it cheaper to be bigger? Lessons from the extreme weapons of giraffe weevil warriors. And so these uh, people at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute have been studying um, New Zealand giraffe weevils, which are kind of beetle. Um, the males are the largest beetle in the world. It's because they have this super long snout, which you can see. This is actually a female on the screen, but the males have sometimes their, their snout part, kind of like a horn almost, is longer than their entire body. But the strange thing about these beetles, I think that's the only picture of it. The strange thing about these beetles is that the males vary tremendously in size. Um, some of them, the large males are, um, are 30 times as large as the small males. So the species has sexual dimorphism where the males and females are different um, size and have a different look. Um, but the males also have this extreme difference. Um, you know, that would be like... Um, you know, if I was a small human and then the biggest basketball player in the world was, um, um, how many, um, like 180 feet tall, I guess. <laughs> so that's the difference between these two bugs. And so they've been studying, trying to figure out how the beetles, um, end up growing so big. Cause usually like the biggest gorilla is the one that's like the most fit. And so gets the first of every, all the food and is the best fighter. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a fitness display really is size. And, and that makes, um, you be more able to pass on your genes. Um, similar things with, with deer horns and things like that. And, um, it's a sign of how healthy and, and virile you are. Um, but, but the difference here is so big that it makes no sense. Um, and so like that, the, these, the bigger beetles could find more food. And so it turns out that what it is, is that the, um, while they're mating, the big beetles sort of use their big horn snout thing to fight off other rival males, other big ones as they're fertilizing the egg on the female. Uh, but while all that is happening up on the top above the little tiny males that are the small version of male sneak underneath the legs of the huge beetle and fertilize the eggs, um, without, um, without the big guy even noticing. So they kind of sneak in there. And so both are successful uh, reproductive strategies, which allows one beetle, which pushes one beetle to get bigger and bigger and pushes the other beetle to get smaller and smaller. And so they're almost like diverging as a species, even though they're the same species, which is really fascinating. You don't see that very often in the animal world. So that was a, the article this week. And my Saiku, to go along with it, was right here. Overlong snout of the giraffe weevil, one strategy. Overlong snout of the giraffe weasel, one strategy. That is your Saiku for today, and that is your show today. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's been a lot of fun, as it always is. Great poems in the open lines, great poems from Edison Jennings. Once again, check out his book, Intentional Fallacies, from um, um, Broad... What was it? the name of the press? Let me, uh, let me shout out his press one last time. It was... Um, yeah, Broadstone Books. That's what it is, broadstonebooks.com. So check out um, Edison's book, Intentional Fallacies There. And next week's prompt is a shorter one after the long prompt. Uh, this is next week's prompt. Write a poem about unrequited love. That is next week's prompt to write a poem about unrequited love. You might already have one. Um, and if you're married, you might want to be careful. But <laughs> that is uh, the poem, the prompt for this week. 
uh, write a poem about unrequited love. And next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be um, uh, Marcella Schulak and uh, her newest book, City of Skyscrapers. Now, Marcella lives um, now in, in Israel. She was born in Texas, has lived in, in Chechia last time we ran into her. Uh, but now I think she's back in Israel, I think I heard, or maybe she's still in Chechia, I don't know. But either way, the regular time is too late, which is why we have alternate times. It's going to be Sunday, August 22nd, uh, noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific, the early slot, which will be good, of course, for people overseas too, everyone out there in Europe and in India and in Indonesia. Um, you can actually catch us. So always good to have those early shows too, even though most of our poets are in the United States and, and the late shows are better for them. Um, that'll be Rattlecast number 107. Uh, Marcella is, uh, I mean, she does so many things. She has so many books she's published. She's a professor. She's the editor of the Ianoa, Ianota Review. Um, she's a tr- prolific translator. And she has this new book from Black Lawrence Press, City of Sky Papers. That's Marcella Schulak. That is Rattlecast number 107. Your prompt is write a poem about unrequited love all next week next sunday noon eastern time august 22nd hope to see you then hope you have a great week and i will see you for the critique of the week on friday at 9 a.m i should say or noon eastern time in that new slot too so uh, have a good night talk to you later good night